Season 7 finale, Hometown Legends of the West. I'll be the driver on this cross-country journey. My name is Derek Hayes. I can't wait to be your chaperone as we meander state by state in search of creepies, crawlies, haunts, and haints. Keep in mind that for tonight's season finale special, we will be featuring calls from the western half of the United States. That's any state west of the Mississippi including Louisiana. Now, when one envisions the West, oftentimes they think of vast open prairies, impenetrable mountain ranges, the great Pacific Northwest, and, of course, the deserts of the Southwest. But there also seems to be some sort of natural magic in the rocks out West, places that heal, mystify, and inspire. The vortexes of Sedona, Arizona, or the monoliths of Yosemite Valley. And there are unnatural wonders as well. Top secret military installments. Underground alien bases. Places like the Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, or the haunted cells of Alcatraz Island off the coast of San Francisco. Then, in the dark recesses, the caves, swamps, and the darkest of forests, unworldly creatures dwell. In the depths of Lake Tahoe, that straddles the border of Nevada and California, a strange creature lurks. The rugged terrain of Montana is set to harbor the wolf-like Shankawar Khan. And in the swamps and bayous of Louisiana, there are a number of mysterious monsters. But why take it from me when you can take it directly from a local? For more on the Beast of the Bayou, and to kick off the second part of the Season 7 finale, the following is Lawrence Call from the state of Louisiana. Hi Derek, my name is Lauren and I live in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, this is going to be for your hometown legends. I've got a couple of cryptids from South Louisiana that I wanted to tell you about. First of all, your podcast is amazing. It's an absolute joy to listen to. Please keep up the good work. So my first cryptid that I wanted to talk about is called a Rougarou. It's essentially a Cajun werewolf. Uh, comes from France. There's a lot of werewolf folklore in France, and the French word for werewolf in, is loup-garou. 
so you know French came over into Canada they migrated into South Louisiana the language sort of evolved French language sort of evolved into Cajun which is just a really heavy dialect of French and with that you know loop guru became Rougarou the essential folklore is the same uh, you become a werewolf at midnight if you've been cursed or bitten by one um, you know you kill people and, and whatnot so it's essentially the same what's interesting about Rougarous is there's a bunch of little legends that go along with it I mean just hundreds of little legends and you know it just depends on where you are in South Louisiana you know they're different in Cajun country they're different in New Orleans they're different in Baton you know everywhere has its own little tidbit to add to the Rougarou legend um, I'm gonna kind of go through some of the more popular ones so it's used you know essentially to keep children in line it's used as an obedience tool you know I, I can even remember as a child um, I grew up in South Baton Rouge which is you know a medium-sized city I grew up in the suburbs and like right along the edge of South Baton Rouge my my neighborhood butted up against a bunch of sugarcane fields and you know when we were kids we'd take our bikes and we'd go ride out there and chew on sugarcane for a while because we had nothing better to do but I remember I had this one friend and her mom every now and then not very often they were from somewhere in Cajun country Louisiana and she would say you know be back before dark or the Rougarou's gonna get you and my family's not from Louisiana and I was like what the hell is a Rougarou and it was the first time I'd heard of it so it kind of sparked an interest and I started you know looking it up and this is you know these these things are are things that I've come across over the years these things that I'm going to mention there's several ways to become a Rougarou. If you make eye contact with one, you can become a Rougarou. If you are cursed by a witch or a voodoo priestess, you can become a Rougarou. One of the more, I guess, local ones, uh, one of the more specific ones, um, th there's a very large Catholic population here in South Louisiana. And if you don't keep Lent for seven years, you can either become a Rougarou or be killed by a Rougarou. I've heard it both ways. I've also heard that it can be a 101-day curse. That seems to be very common in the folklore. Uh, after 101 days, the next person that you bite or the next blood that you draw, you pass the curse along to that person. And then either you die or you remain alive, but very sickly and you don't last very long. You know, it just, like I said, there's so many different versions. So it just depends on who's telling the story. You can keep a Rougarou at bay by putting 13 small items in front of your door or your window. The idea behind this is that the Rougarou is not very smart. It, it can't count past 12. So by putting 13 items out, it's, it gets confused and runs away. One that's a little more obscure that I've heard is you can do the same thing with a colander. And it's the same idea. It, it gets lost kind of counting the holes and gets confused and runs away. You can kill a Rougarou by cutting its head off. You can kill a Rougarou by, you know, dismembering it or certain other things you know taking the curse or killing the priestess who put the curse on you it's just there's so many it's such a combined folklore from all these different you know 
things. It involves voodoo and witchcraft and, and a lot of different things. Whatever that area has focused on is, is what you get in your legend. So it's, just, it's a very interesting legend, the Rougarou. The other one that I wanted to talk about, and that's probably a little more familiar to you and your listeners, is the Honey Island Swamp Monster. Basically a swamp Bigfoot. It's a little, it's different in some ways, but it's similar in that it's an ape-like large creature, seven to eight feet tall, heavy, 400 to 500 pounds, covered in dark brown hair. The, you know, it has a, a bad smell, which is very common in Bigfoot, you know, sightings and, and, and folklore. You know, it's, it's that bad smell. What's different about the swamp monster, the Honey Island swamp monster, is that you, you take this, this bad smell and dip it in a swamp and then have it run around in 100 degree weather with 100% humidity and just imagine that, that just death swamp smell. It must be horrible. Another difference with this Honey Island Swamp Monster is that it's said to have reptilian eyes. So it's said to have yellow eyes with like a, a slit, slitted pupil. Instead of, you know, I, I hear that Bigfoot have more like human eyes. They have more intelligent eyes. So that's a difference. Um, another one is that it's said to have webbed toes. So maybe just from being in the water, it's evolved webbed toes. But that's that's a little bit different. Something a little more fun about Honey Island Swamp Monster is the origin story. One of the supposed origin stories. I can't remember where I came across this. It might have been online. It might have been a book. I don't remember. It's been a while. But it... So in the 1920s, there was supposed to have been a traveling circus train that crashed in, you know, this sort of South Louisiana swamp area south of New Orleans. And this, it, like a bunch of chimpanzees escaped this train. I have a hard time with this. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having a hard time telling you. It's, just, it's so funny. A bunch of chimpanzees escaped this train and they bred with alligators. Yeah, I know. I can't, I can't make this up. I swear to God. I, I read that somewhere. So that's supposed to be the origin story of this creature. You know, I'm sure there's other stuff. Yeah, it, it kills wild animals. We have every now and then we have a lot of wild boar down here, and every now and then one will turn up gutted or its throat slashed, and it's you know sometimes attributed to this Honey Island swamp monster. So um, those are those are our cryptids for South Louisiana in a nutshell. And there's a lot more hometown legends out of New Orleans, so I'll call back with those later. But thanks for listening, guys, and keep on trucking, Derek. Thank you, Lauren. I absolutely love these swamp monster stories. The thought of a French Cajun werewolf running around out there somewhere just warms the cockles of my heart. And I know Lauren covered it quite well in her call, but I thought I'd dive just a little deeper on this Honey Island swamp monster uh, origin theory. But first, a little more on the creature itself. This clip comes courtesy of WGNO, ABC News, out of New Orleans. When it looks human, but you're not quite sure it's human, you don't know whether to shoot or or shoot or run back to the house. And there's just been too many people who have had some type of encounter to say that it's not out there. The Honey Island Swamp Monster is um, a creature that lives in the swamp. We believe that it still exists. It was first reported by my grandfather 
He was the first one to report a sighting. Um, that was back in 1974, but it was actually in 63 that he first saw it. When they saw it, it was down on all fours, but when they heard there's voices, like when they said, what is that thing? It stood up, turned around, faced them, and they said it's, it had long, grayish, dingy colored hair around its face and body. My grandfather said it had tremendous shoulders, and he said what well, he remembered most about it was its eyes. It had these very big amber-colored eyes. He said it looked right at him, and the face, he said it, all, it was so close to human, but not, it wasn't human. Well, we've heard stories like there was an old circus train that derailed back in the uh, 40s, and circus animals got out, and possibly it was a missing link, or something made it with something else. Just for curiosity, I'd like to find more evidence. You know, I guess because there's a, you know, so many people say, oh, that's not true. I'd like to prove that it is. So as far as this supposed Honey Island Swamp Monster is concerned, I cannot speak to the validity of this case. I do remember a skeptic once claiming the creature to be merely a man in a ghillie suit but I cannot remember the details of this fellow's claim. But what I can weigh in on is the origin story for this proposed cryptid. The idea that an escaped chimpanzee would reproduce with a wild alligator. Now putting all logistics aside, chimpanzees have 48 chromosomes, while the American alligator only has 32. So in that, they're 100% incompatible to reproduce no matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstance. What I do find fascinating, however, is the mention of the derailed train car. I've noticed over the years that the mention of a derailed circus car has been a widely utilized trope in the backstories to many of these cryptids across the nation. In addition to the Honey Island Swamp Monster, alien big cats, the Gettysburg Gorilla, and a Peninsula Python of Ohio, and several other lesser-known and one-off cryptids somehow have a wrecked circus train in their origin story. Now, the fact is, there have been many train disasters, but none, to my knowledge, resulted in some sort of mystery animal surviving beyond the accident. Still, the idea is completely fascinating. And to be honest, reminds me a bit of the Indiana Jones series, or some other serial adventure. Well, thank you again, Lauren, for taking the time to share your hometown's legends, I guess, in this particular case. I'd love to hear about those creepies. So as I went through the list of Western submissions, I couldn't help but notice more double submissions, more experiences with these legends, and in the West's case, a bushel of calls from the state of Texas. So for the sake of variety, and to be sure that everyone's submission gets played... I'm going to rapid-fire a few of these small-town Texas submissions, kicking things off with this anonymous submission from the Lone Star State. Hey, Derek, this is another hometown legend. It's really, in my small town, it's really hard to tell small to, uh, these hometown legends because these are all my friends' families and things, and so I, I feel like I have to be sensitive. But with that being said... Another hometown legend is that of the Bonner Mansion, and you can look up the evidence of uh, this mansion. Just type in Bonner Mansion, Texas, uh, if you want more information. But the rumor that I heard from the extended family is that 
But when they heard that they were not allowed to have their slaves anymore on this plantation, the owners, being evil, it sounds like, um, killed most, if not all. I've heard lots of different stories of these slaves to kind of do their last creepy little hoorah. We always heard all kinds of stories about, um, I mean, everyone had a story from this place because we would uh, party about 100 yards, you know, from it, and people would go travel to it. Well, when I was about 12 years old, my sister and I were driving down the back roads where this was located. It's all gone now, so don't try to hunt it down. They tore it down. And, uh, and after all the pres- all the historical people trying to preserve it, anyway, I'm getting off, off top. My sister asked me to, uh, she dared me to go to this to the Spawner Mansion and of course being me I said of course and we pull up and this, and I swear on all things holy I wouldn't lie about this this is a real experience that I had we pulled up and I swear I thought I mean I saw a black man that was heavy set and pinstripe overalls I have never seen any like this since it's like the real deal some kind of pinstriped overalls like cotton with a straw brim hat on and he was glaring at us and, I, and he was real I mean he was there and uh and I said go 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 well my sister turns around and drives out and then she stops and she's white as a ghost and she says are you ready to go back and I was like no someone was there we we're gonna have to go back tomorrow because they're watching it today because they were known to watch it so I said they're watching it and she said look nobody was there no one was there and I refused to believe that so the next day, which was only the start of my experiences, but the next day we went up there so that I could show her, you know, again. And when we got there, the rocking chair that this man was sitting in, in front of this tree to the right of the, of the plantation, was there. It was behind the tree, broken in pieces. It looked like it had been laying there for 200 years, grown up with so many weeds that there is no way that that was there the day before assembled and not covered up with all those mines and it, it shook me and it and it was just the beginning of a, of, of a lot of experiences uh, and everybody has their own but there's a there's a deep uh, history that goes along with um, the Bonner Mansion so if anybody's interested there's a lot of information there but uh, hope you can use this thank you Thank you, caller. Next up, Alma, also from Texas. Hi there. Uh, My name is Alma. I'm from uh, Houston, Texas, and this is for the Hometown Legends episode. I think today's the deadline. Today's June 28th. Um, So we in Houston technically have ghosts. Um, one of our most well-known one is uh, is the ghost that haunts the Julia Edison Public Library, which is now um, it's not accessible to the public anymore. It used to be the Carnegie Library in, in Houston many, many years ago. Um, and they used to have a caretaker um, and he there's a lot of different stories of how he became the caretaker of that building. But when he passed away uh, a couple of decades ago, he um, apparently they've heard, so he was an accomplished violinist, so he liked to play the violin and he had a, a pet dog as well, a German Shepherd. 
that would he would take along with him to kind of just take care of the property, police the property at night. Um, and when he passed away, he apparently, his body may have left, but his spirit apparently has not left. Um, there have been many reports, uh, people who, and, so downtown Houston is not very popular at night. Not a lot of people wandering around in downtown Houston, there's nothing to do. So you obviously will notice something that doesn't belong because there really aren't people around. Apparently, if you walk uh, during that part, it's facing City Hall of Houston. So if you walk in that area of downtown at night, you will hear violin music. But there's actually, those buildings are, that building is now only used for administrative purposes and archiving. So they don't really have a lot of people that work in that building. Because it really, it's just archives at this point. So it's very difficult to kind of uh, explain away violin music in the middle of the night, like at midnight, 1 a.m., coming from an area that no one would go there. Maybe there's a random person who maybe goes plays the violin at night, uh, but this is the this has been recounted many many times by different people over the last couple of decades. So it's very uh, interesting that you will encounter violin music at night in that part of downtown Houston. Um, a lot of people believe that it's him. He never left. He he was his beloved uh, place. So he basically sits around playing the violin and other people have mentioned that they can hear um, like toenail, like dog, footsteps of dogs, essentially. I have four dogs, so I, I've, I've, uh, it's been described as that. And they talk about how um, since he had a pet German Shepherd, they believe that it's probably his German Shepherd uh, running around in uh in the building uh since no one really you can't a no one really works in that building and b no one's going to take their pet to work there um so i find it very interesting um so that is our hometown legend in houston there's a couple of more um we did have the spaghetti warehouse which unfortunately uh, that was one of the most haunted places in the country unfortunately it flooded uh during harvey so that building is now gone Unfortunately, they had to shut down the building. So but there's a couple of stories from that building as well. Um, and uh, our oldest bar in Houston, which is like not that old, it's from the 1800s, apparently is also haunted. But I'll go back for uh, about that one later on when I get more details on it. Um, once again, thank you for having this great show. Um, you make my workday go by really quickly and really fast. So I appreciate that um, and keep up the good work. Have a good day. Bye. Thank you, Alma. I actually have a couple more I'd like to get through. So next up on the list is Amber's submission. Hi, this is Amber from East Texas, and I am calling about um, the hometown legend. In my hometown, we have a very old cemetery called Kilo Monument. There is actually something called the Kilo Monument Massacre, where a bunch of Native Americans actually murdered settlers. 
And basically, when they were found, they just dug holes where they were found and then rolled their bodies into the holes and, you know, put, like, covered them back up. And there's, like, a lot of misinformation and stuff about it. Like, I think that it was another group of settlers that actually murdered them and blamed the Native Americans. So the Native Americans in the East Texas area were blamed for it, but I don't really think they did it. And there's a lot of different speculation about it. If you go there, it's extremely haunted. I had taken uh, a friend of mine there who was from Kansas, and she had never heard about it. And it's literally just a couple of miles up the road from where I live. And her little girl at the time was only four. And I, you know, just told her, I was like, hey, I'm going to take you to this place. I didn't tell her anything about it. We didn't talk about it in the car on the way there. Like, I mean, we could have walked, but we drove because we had a kid, and it just it's easier. We didn't talk about it. We just pulled up. And her little girl's name was Lindsay. And we're, you know, walking around in the graveyard and we're talking and just kind of, you know, goofing off because we were friends and we worked together and, you know, we're just being silly. And I was taking pictures on my cell phone and I caught a couple of orbs. And I had noticed that, like, Lindsay was way at, like, the back gate kind of facing the woods because it's surrounded by a chain link fence. And right in the middle, there's, like, this giant monument, like, that, that shaped like a pyramid. Well, anyway, she's, like, facing the woods, and she has her hands just on the fence, just staring at the woods, and she just looked like like she was in shock, kind of, you know? I was closest to her, so I walk over to her, and I was like, you know, hey, I was like, what, you know, what are you looking at? And she goes, there's a naked man in the woods. And I was like, you know, okay, and I kind of laughed, and she looked at me, like, in total fear, and she said, it's not funny, it's not funny that you're laughing and he doesn't like the fact that you're laughing, but there is a naked man in the woods and he said that he's going to kill us. And I was like, freaked out so bad. (laughs) So we left immediately. I don't know. I guess it was probably a couple of weeks after that. I had told my parents about it because they live right next door to me. And they went down there at night and took a bunch of uh, nighttime pictures with flash and got a whole bunch of orbs and stuff. I mean, they've, they've, published stories about it and like hauntings in texas things like that i mean it's just a it's a really cool place to go as soon as you get there you can feel the heaviness on your chest it's like i mean you can feel the spirits like you can feel that they're there you know they're there it's crazy but that's that's my hometown legend story love your show i keep calling in about stuff because i have all kinds of stuff going on so have a good one thanks thanks amber I gotta say, I think that's the first naked ghost reported on the show. So I suppose I can finally check that box off. Now I have one more to share with you, and you guessed it. It's from Texas. This one was also submitted anonymously. Hi Derek, I was calling trying to submit a hometown legend. I don't know really where to start with this one. I don't want to give out the names of the people because this is very, very sensitive to the families involved. With that said, in the early 2000s, and uh, you can look it up if you want to know more about the details. Just It's as easy as typing in the most gruesome murder in Angelina County, Texas, and you'll find lots of evidence to confirm what I'm saying, but... In the early 2000s, there was a girl, I'm not going to name her name, and she was a little bit handicapped, and but she lived on her own. And she lived in these apartments called Fox Run Apartments. 
And uh, I know this sounds crazy how this could even happen, but she was soliciting her body. And uh, I don't think her family understood what was happening or or that she was being used, but it led to the most gruesome murder in my town. And it was uh, a man tied her to her bed and lit her on fire, burnt the entire section of apartment down in the early 2000s. There were many allegations on who these people were. Uh, there were many people that were uh, seen with her that night. And uh, the mother was adamant that it was the boyfriend. He was questioned, well, never convicted. So fast forward, my sister is living in the same apartment that burned with this woman in it after it was remodeled. And they would do seances. Now, they said a lot of things happened. I never, I never dealt with anything I never did anything like that or participated, but I get strong feelings anyway. I I say it's Christian discernment. Other people can say whatever they want, but anyway, I got this feeling. I don't even know how to describe this. It was about, I would get this feeling. I didn't know it was related for years. I had no idea it was related, but I would be driving down Mount Carmel Road, which was about two roads over from those apartments, and I would get this feeling, and I know this sounds unrelated, but trust me, this, this comes together, so... I'm coming down the road, and I, when I would see the water tower, I would get these chills, and I would think about that girl, and I would see, and I know this sounds crazy, but I swear to you, in my mind, I would see somebody crawling across the road, and uh, and I was always afraid, like, driving right past that area, so I I felt the need to further, you know, study what happened to that, the boyfriend, and with the allegations, and it turns out that the man that was accused, the boyfriend of this girl who was accused, oh, this gives me chill bumps, went up, because this is all, by the way, this is all about five miles from my home. (laughs) Okay, the man must have been guilty. This is what the mother said of the victim. He must have been guilty, because after about two years, after he was, um, after all these things had settled down, he climbed up to the top of the water tower, jumped off, survived the fall with his legs and limbs broken, crawled back to his apartment across the street and refused medical treatment until he passed away. I don't know, you know, speculations are welcome. I don't know if it was the Lord trying to show me some discernment. I don't know if it was some, you know, stone tape theory energy, you know, still around. I don't know what you call it, but as far as hometown legends goes, that's one that, um, you won't hear them talking about in my town, but definitely happened. So I hope you can use this submission. Thank you. Thank you, caller, and a big thanks to all the Texas callers. I have a funny feeling we haven't heard the end of that state for the evening. What do you guys say we cleanse our palate a bit with a call from tropical Hawaii? Well, I'd love to do that. But Eli's call from the Aloha State is perhaps, unsurprisingly, about an incident that took place in, that's right, Texas. This is Eli's hometown legend. Hi, this is Eli calling from Hawaii. Back when I lived in a small town called Evedale, Texas, there was a hometown legend about Thomas Road. Thomas Road is about a mile and a half, maybe two miles of a dirt road. There's a couple of houses at the beginning of it before it turns 
from asphalt to dirt. But the legend goes that back in the early years, I don't remember exactly when, the Thomas family had a large house out there pretty much all by itself. And one day, the entire family was murdered. I think it was about seven of them. So a husband, a wife, and their four or five kids. I don't remember if they were murdered by the KKK or anything like that. I know we, we had a large KKK gathering area for a long time in that town. But it said that if you go down Thomas Road at midnight and go a couple of feet into the woods on the left-hand side, that you will come across their home or the remains of it because it burned down uh, the day after the, the murder. You will hear the family talking. Now, I have some experiences that I've had down Thomas Road being the young and dumb kid I was. All this happened after I was attacked by demons when I was 13. But the legend is, you know, like I said, you go down there and you'll hear them talking and living out their normal lives. I never experienced the, uh, the talking and as if they were still living in the home like nothing had ever happened. But I did experience one night walking with a few of my friends that lived at the house at the beginning of the road. Uh, we decided to go down there at midnight one night and while we were walking down the road, a old black and white photo blew out of the woods onto the road. I, there was four of us total, but by the time we found the picture, two of the other guys had gotten scared, so it was just me and my, my other friend, and let's call him Denny. And Denny and I stopped, looked at the photo with our flashlights, and it was seven people in the photo, and each one of them had a red X painted on it, not like a Sharpie or anything. It was like a deep paint. Well, we were about a mile down the road, and the two guys left way before we had gotten down there. We passed them up getting back to the house. We were so scared. But that's our hometown legend from Ebedale, Texas. I uh, hope you can use it on the show. Love the show. I will call back with other experiences that I've had over the years. Thanks again. Love what you do. Have a good day. Thank you, Eli. And while I find your story and experience fascinating, if not a bit spooky, I now have Hawaii on the brain. So if I don't have a listener-submitted Hawaiian story to share, I'll simply go find one. The following story comes to us via Hawaii News Now. I've actually never been to Hawaii, but I have friends that grew up there. And from a distance, it seems as though those islands are simply crawling with myths and legends. While the stories of the night marchers in spirit are legend, their existence in the flesh and blood is fact and gives great insight into the culture of ancient Hawaii. In the word there is life, in the word there is death, and in some families, even to speak it, they are afraid that they perhaps might invoke that entity to appear or to do something. And the entities which Lopaka Kapanui speaks of are the night marchers. They were the, uh, the spirits or the ghosts of uh, warriors whose job it was when they were alive to precede a person that was so sacred that as they passed you could not look at them. To do so meant death. 
which is why they gave everyone fair notice. One of the things these processions did was to warn you by the sound of the conch shells, the drums. Now in the afterlife, the warriors do the same. As Lopaka tells it, sightings are often accompanied by the sounds of those shells and drums for warnings of danger. The best thing to do is get the hell out of there and run. It's easy to see how the marchers have evolved into boogeymen in popular culture, but history tells it otherwise. They were just doing their job, I like to think. Researcher and historian Nanette Napoleon uses the night marchers to give a window into life in ancient Hawaii. Now, a lot of people don't realize that um, processions were a very common part of everyday life. These processions serve for the ali'i to check on their lands and collect tribute as well. Everyone involved knew their part. The commoners, um, when they saw ali'i, they knew that the ali'i, these are our ali'i who were the manifestation of our gods and that we need to honor them, pay tribute to them. While her work is based on that which can be proven, Nanette allows for that which cannot. She believes in the night marchers, as does Lopaka, who has had what he believes is a personal encounter. He shares his stories not to induce fear, but to impart knowledge. I want to talk about it because I want to dispel any misconceptions or, or urban legends or myths about the night marchers, but I also want to impart respect. And that respect Lopaka speaks of is to not joke about the night marchers or even search for them lest you find what you're looking for. One quick note, a special thanks to the Bishop Museum for helping out with some of the visual aspects of this story. Chris Tanaka, Hawaii News Now. Just seems so exotic and alien compared to how I grew up and how I live now. I definitely need to get myself out there. But in all seriousness, Eli, I doubt you did, but I don't suppose you kept that photograph. At best, it could be some sort of proof of the afterlife, more likely evidence in a murder trial, or at the very least, a conversation starter in a certain podcaster's study. Hint, hint. Thanks again, Eli, for taking the time to share your hometown's legend. Our next experience of the evening was actually submitted in the written form. The following is Kristen's submission from the state of Arkansas. Hi, my name is Kristen and I'm from Arkansas. I've written in before about my experiences and I have more to share. I believe every town has a ghost train story and I'm still not sure what I saw, but it happened about 13 years ago when I was only 17. Me and a small group of friends were riding up the roads one weekend and we wanted to test the Crest City light legend of our hometown. We drove out to the old Crest City Railroad Crossing a little spot on an Arkansas back road that is known for having ghost experiences of a ghost train or light orb that comes through vehicles that park on the tracks at night. We went and parked on the tracks for what felt like hours, with nothing. No traffic, no trains, not even a coyote's howl. When we were finally ready to go, the car acted like it didn't want to start, and we saw a light coming around the curve about a mile or so down the tracks. We, a group of 17-year-old girls, started to freak out. Finally, the car started and we moved off the tracks. We pulled up just a few feet, enough to get off the tracks and not get hit. We all got out, still catching our breath, and walked closer to the tracks to wait on the train. Now as the train grew closer, I noticed 
There was no rumble, so I touched my foot to the track. There was nothing. No rumble or shaking or anything that would indicate an oncoming train. It had almost reached us, but it never blew its horn. Usually you can hear the horn all over town, because the town is so small and the tracks go right through the outside of town. But no horn at all. As it passed, I stuck my hand out. I wasn't close enough to touch it or anything. I wasn't that dumb. But close enough, I should have felt the air off of it as it rolled through. But there was none. We all looked at each other, then bolted back to the car. We sat and waited for the train to pass, turned around, and hauled tail back to town. We never knew if it was real or not, but my gut tells me that it wasn't. Thank you, and I have plenty more stories to come. I've lived a spooky life. I suppose growing up next door to a cemetery my whole life changes my perspective. Thanks for listening. Love your show, and keep it up. Kristen. Well, thank you, Kristen. I know one of the most popular hometown legends in my hometown also is about a train. So obviously the railroad is the perfect setting for these amazing stories. By the way, if you want to hear more about my hometown's legend, go back and listen to the very first Hometown Legend special, and you'll hear the entire story. Next, on our journey toward the setting sun, we make our way back to the state of Texas for a true crime-style local legend. The following is Alan's Tale. Hello, Derek. This is Alan from Texas, and this is for Hometown Legends. This is a mostly true story about a man named Joe Ball who lived in a small town called Elmendorf, which is about 25 miles from where I live. There aren't any cryptids or anything paranormal in this story, but there are alligators, and I guess there could be one monster depending on your definition of monster. Elmendorf is just outside of and southeast of San Antonio, Texas. One of its founding citizens was Frank Ball. He was a wealthy man. He ran a cotton gin, and all the cotton crops for miles around went through his gin for processing. He and his wife Elizabeth had eight children, and they all lived in the first house in the town to be made from stone instead of just wood. Most of the Ball children grew up to be fine, upstanding people. One of his sons was even the first mayor of Elmendorf when it was incorporated as a city in 1963. But then there was Joe. We don't really know anything about Joe Ball's childhood, but since his father was one of the richest men in the area, he probably had it better than most as he was growing up. Joe's story starts when he joined the army and served in Europe during the Great War. We don't have any information on what he did there, or what he saw or what he experienced, but everyone who knew him thought he had changed when he came back to Elmendorf. He was darker somehow and mean. It seemed he had developed a cruel streak. He carried his pistol on him all the time, no matter what he was doing, and he was an excellent shot. Prohibition was still in force at this time, so Joe took up bootlegging. 
He would haul whiskey around in a 50-gallon barrel and ladle it out for anyone who had money and something to pour it into. Eventually, prohibition was repealed, so Joe just sidestepped into the less profitable but still lucrative business of selling legal liquor, and he opened a bar in Elmendorf. Joe made a living at it, but he was always looking for more ways to bring in more customers, because more customers meant more money. He did some trick shooting. Joe was very good with his pistol. He could lay a beer bottle on top of a fence post, back off ten yards or so, and put a bullet through the mouth of the bottle. His shot would blow out the bottom end of the bottle without even chipping the mouth. Sometimes he would casually draw his pistol and shoot a sparrow off a power line without hardly ever seeming to aim. He was a very good shot. Sometimes Joe would host cockfights, and he probably ran the books for them, too. Since this was also illegal, it was quite profitable, bringing fees both from the gambling as well as from the owners of the fighting roosters. But Joe was always looking for new ways to bring in more customers, because more customers meant more money. He built a pond behind his bar. He fenced the pond so anything he put into it couldn't escape. He caught several alligators and put them in his pond. Alligators were easy to find. He managed to catch one big one and a few smaller ones. But no worry, the small ones would grow if they had a steady diet. There were plenty of stray dogs around. Late on weekend nights when his customers had had plenty of whiskey, Joe would announce that it was time for the show. Everyone would file out the back door of the bar and surround the pond where the alligators waited. Bets would be made on how long the animal would last. More bets would be made on which gator would make the kill. Then Joe would toss a stray dog he had caught into the pond and everyone would cheer while the gators finished it off. Sometimes it wasn't a dog, sometimes it was a cat. Even if Joe hadn't managed to come up with a stray that week, he could always snare a squirrel or a possum or even a raccoon. Joe always had something to throw to the gators. Joe liked women. He hired a lot of pretty women to work as waitresses in his bar. Attractive waitresses brought in more customers. It seemed there was a continuous stream of pretty waitresses working at Joe's bar. Some of them didn't work there for long before they decided to move on. No one knew where they went. No one ever heard from them again. But times were hard. People had to make a living. You went where you could find work. You minded your own business. There was always another pretty girl to replace the last one. There were some strange rumors about what might have happened to Joe's waitresses, but no one ever mentioned these rumors to Joe. Joe was mean. He had a cruel streak, and he was very good with his gun. Joe hired a man named Clifton Wheeler to do odd jobs and help him out with his bar. Back in those days, Clifton was probably often referred to with a term that civilized people don't use anymore. And these days, most people would probably just say that he was African-American. Joe was mean. He had a cruel streak. Sometimes he would shoot at Clifton's feet to make him dance. But jobs were hard to find, and a man had to make a living. Besides, Clifton was afraid of Joe. He was certain Joe would kill him if he didn't do what he was told. So Clifton did what he was told. Joe's favorite waitress was a woman named Minnie Gothard, Big Minnie, they called her. Joe took up with her, and she began sleeping with him in one of the bedrooms attached to the bar. Other waitresses came and went. No one knew where they went or why they suddenly disappeared. But Big Minnie was always around. 
until Joe hired another waitress named Hazel Brown. Hazel was beautiful, with dark eyes and black hair. She almost looked like a movie star. It didn't take long before Joe took up with her, too. This didn't please Minnie one bit. She was jealous, and she let Joe know it. One day, Joe took Minnie on a little trip down to the coast. Clifton went with them. Only Joe and Clifton came back. Minnie had decided to go see her folks in her hometown, Joe said. He didn't think she would be coming back. But no worry, there would always be another pretty girl to replace the last one. The next waitress Joe hired was named Dolores Goodwin. Everyone called her Buddy. She wasn't nearly as pretty as Hazel, but she was new and she was different. Buddy had lost an arm in an accident earlier in her life, but she was a hard worker and she could serve drinks and bus tables even with only one arm. It seems that maybe Joe was more attracted to variety than he was to physical beauty, and it wasn't long before he was sleeping with Buddy. He grew tired of Hazel and her jealousy, but that problem soon ended when Hazel suddenly disappeared. She found a better job in another town, Joe said. He didn't think she would be coming back. A man whose name we don't know was doing some work on some property owned by Joe. This man kept catching a whiff of the scent of decay. He followed his nose to the back of a barn where he found a 50-gallon barrel with flies buzzing all around it. The stench was very strong. He didn't open the barrel, but he knew something bad had happened there, so he went to the Bear County Sheriff's Office and reported it. It took a day or two before Bear County deputies John Gray and John Clevenhagen went to investigate the barrel behind the barn. By the time they got there, it was gone. So they did the logical thing and went to ask Joe about it. They walked into Joe's bar, and as soon as Joe saw them, he drew his pistol. The deputies both went for their guns and shouted to Joe to drop his, but Joe never even aimed his pistol at the deputies. He turned the pistol on himself and fired one shot. It only took one shot. Joe was very good with his gun. When Buddy Goodwin was questioned, she said that Joe had boasted to her that he had killed Hazel and if she didn't do as she was told, he'd kill her too. She said she didn't know that he had killed Hazel, but she thought that it was likely, and she did as she was told because she was afraid of Joe. He was mean, she said. He had a cruel streak. She had a bad scar on her face because of Joe, a long, jagged scar that went from her eye down to her neck. Joe had hit her there with a broken beer bottle, but it was an accident, she said. Joe had been trying to hit someone else. When Clifton was questioned, he broke down and told him everything he knew. He was afraid of Joe, he said. Joe was mean, had a cruel streak. He said Joe would shoot at his feet to make him dance. Joe was good with his gun, Clifton said. He could have shot my toes off one at a time if he'd have taken a mind to. Clifton said he knew Joe would kill him if he didn't do as he was told. So he did what he was told and kept his mouth shut. A man had to make a living. Clifton took the police to the place where he and Joe had buried what was left of Hazel. Joe had made him cut Hazel's body up with a saw, he told them. It was horrible, he said. She was already in bad shape from being dead for a few days by that time. I don't know why he made me do that, he said. Maybe it was so he could get rid of her a little at a time, but he didn't know for sure, he said. A little at a time, they asked. Yeah, he said, you know, the gators. Clifton told them he was with Joe and Minnie when Minnie had been murdered. We was at Ingleside, he told them. Joe shot her in the back. She dropped dead and we buried her right there. 
They took Clifton to Ingleside and he showed them the exact spot where Minnie was buried. She was still there. No one knows for sure how many waitresses worked at Joe's Bar before suddenly disappearing. Some say a dozen. Some say maybe as many as twenty. No one knows for sure if they really did just move on to other places and other jobs. Or if something else happened to them. But Joe had done a lot of business at his bar, and his gators were all quite healthy and obviously well-fed. Buddy disappeared after this. We don't know what became of her. But we can be sure that she was a one waitress Joe hired who survived to work another job in another town. Clifton was an accessory to murder. Unwilling, perhaps, but an accessory nonetheless. He served two years in prison for his misfortune. After he was released, he returned to Elmendorf and operated a bar there himself for a little while. Then he moved on as well, and we don't know what became of him. And the alligators? They were all moved to the San Antonio Zoo where a special ponds had been built for them, and there they stayed for the rest of their lives, taken care of and fed on whatever it is that zoos feed captive alligators, spending their time peacefully lying in the sun and floating in their ponds where visitors to the zoo could come and see them. And most of those visitors never knew where these gators had come from or what they might have eaten. But some people who saw those gators knew where they had come from and some people had heard the stories about Joe and his alligators and they wondered if those stories were true. Thank you, Alan. I thoroughly enjoy your stories no matter how dark and terrifying they may be. Now this Joe Ball fella kind of reminds me of a man named Ken Rex McElroy. Another town bully that met an untimely demise. But unlike Joe Ball, his death remains a mystery to this day. If you'd like to learn more about Ken Rex McElroy, I highly recommend BuzzFeed Unsolved's true crime episode on the subject. A link to it and pretty much anything else mentioned on this show can be found in the show notes for tonight's episode. Thank you again, Alan. I always look forward to your submissions. The next stop on our faded map is the quaint town of Rolla, Missouri. The following is a written submission submitted anonymously. Hi, Derek. I love your podcast. I have an entry for hometown legends that I honestly forgot about till recently. I live in the small town of Rolla, Missouri, and in between my town and another is the Goman's grave. I really don't know the whole story, but at least one version of the story is that in this little cemetery, there's a grave that actually has a goat man carved into it. Supposedly, it's the grave of a slave who was hung for witchcraft. I'm sure there are other versions floating around about it. Now, actually, in the same cemetery, there's supposed to be a pile of rocks that were used to entomb babies that had passed during the winter as well as it was too cold and the ground was frozen, so they couldn't bury them. It's actually supposed to be several degrees warmer in the cemetery than in the surrounding area. There's also reports of red eyes in the surrounding forest, an abandoned bus, and, as you would probably expect, given the area, a crazy person with a shotgun who shoots at anyone 
who comes near. I have a friend that went out there a few years ago, and she confirmed that the grave does indeed say Goatman, but not much else. Anyway, I hope the story is interesting. Thank you so much for letting me submit. Well, thank you for that submission. And to be perfectly honest, I was not aware of this particular Goatman legend before reading this entry. So thank you for teaching me something new. The list of activity reported in the cemetery is quite extensive. So I'm actually pretty surprised that the story isn't more well known. Thank you again for taking the time to share your hometown's legend. Before we move on to the next submission of the evening, I just wanted to thank everyone for all the merchandise purchases that you've made over the past week. There's still a few remaining t-shirts and stickers and a few hats, but I'll also have the mirrored men shirts coming back, the ones that were designed by the amazing Julia Meyer over at Cryptid Zoo. They'll be back in stock in maybe a couple weeks. Now I know I talk about donating and buying things and supporting the show a lot, and lately that's been even more than usual. But that's all for a good reason. Huge things are in store for monsters among us. The sky is literally the limit. And I plan to continue to grow and expand not only the show, but the entire brand. And I can't tell you how much it means to the entire Monsters Among Us crew that you continue to support us the way you do. Now enough about all that. Let's hear our next entry. And would you guys believe it's from good old Texas? There must be a lot of freaky things in Texas. So we might as well add Aubrey and the Hotel Driscoll to that list while we're at it. Hi, this is Aubrey. I'm calling for a hometown legend submission regarding the Hotel Driscoll. So the Driscoll is in Austin, Texas, and it was built in 1886 and my husband and I and um, our young son and my mother we stayed a weekend at the Driscoll in late September 2016 really beautiful hotel and uh, we got to hear from the employees about all the haunted spots in the hotel uh, like the fifth floor and room 525 and the picture of Samantha Houston which is a little girl that actually Sam Houston's grandchild that fell to her death on the main staircase in the lobby the first year that the hotel was open, uh, which is really sad. So I got to hear all about that. But my encounter happened the first night that we were there. It was anywhere from 11 to midnight. And uh, I was in our hotel room, which it was a really nice room. It looked modern except for the bathroom uh, you could tell it was really old, like it had the old tub and the old light fixtures and faucet. And I was sitting up in bed. Uh, there were two beds. I was sitting up in bed with my husband. He was asleep. And in the next bed was my mother and my young son, and they were asleep. And I was up reading a book with a little flashlight, little book flashlight, little women is what I was reading, just trying to get tired uh, usually reading helps me just trying to get tired trying to you know get myself ready to go to bed so I was getting really into my book and all of a sudden 
our ceiling fan turns on high speed. Like it, it wasn't on at all. Like we, it was completely off and it just turned on and was going full speed. It shocked me. And at the Driscoll, their ceiling fans are operated by remote control that they have little remotes that are hung on the wall and it was a and I could see the remote it was a, across the room from me on the wall hanging up and um, I remember just kind of in shock a little bit and then just kind of paralyzed like oh my god what just happened you know and I shook my husband awoke like hey uh ceiling fan just came on by itself and he's half awake and he's like oh it's probably you know someone in another room you know that turned their ceiling fan on with their remote which is possible but the hotel the walls are 18 inches thick uh the way they designed it so i was just like well that i mean it's possible but that's just you know because the walls are so thick i thought well that's still kind of creepy and to me i'd like to think it was just like a ghost and hey yeah we're here but you know like i said it could have been a malfunction or anything but that's my ghost story at the Driscoll, and it was really exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Audrey. I wonder what it is about hotels. So many of them reportedly have activity. I could think of a plethora of different hotels that are haunted just here in my local area. The Coronado in San Diego. The Roosevelt in Hollywood. And even up here, we have a tiny little bar slash hotel called the Saddleback. And of course, it too is a ghostly legend. Thank you for taking the time to share your call, Audrey. I'll be sure to check out the Driscoll if I'm ever in that area. Now we're trucking right along here, but believe it or not, I still have most of the really strange stories yet to share. But before we get there, I have a little bit of bad news to deliver. I've reached the point where I can no longer respond to every message that I receive. In honesty, that's been the case for several months, but it's to the point now where I felt like I need to let everyone know. I will continue to read each and every message received, and answer those that I can. But I think that you can all agree with this. Most people would rather I spend my time producing content than answering emails and messages. Of course, that does not include Patreon supporters. I will always respond to those messages. And one more quick thing of business before we get back to the tales. Season 8 begins next week, which means I still need calls to keep the show going. So if you have a story you would like to share, call the hotline at one 888 608 night. That's 1 888 608 6444. Or visit the website at monstersamonguspodcast.com and click on the Report Your Sightings tab for more submission options. And you still have a couple days to submit trucker stories or tales from the road if you experience something strange on a road trip or, or you're a delivery man that uh, witnessed something odd. I want to hear those windshield encounters and try to have them in to me by you know maybe Monday or so alright with that little pit stop out of the way we're back on the road and back into the action 
And to kick things off, we're going to Joey in California. Hi, Derek. This is Joey calling from Long Beach, California. I have been holding on to this story for quite some time, and my husband, who is a avid listener and huge fan of yours for years, has been begging me forever to call in and tell you this story. And since you're doing your Hometown Legends finale, it just sounded like the perfect time to call in. I guess I'll just jump right in. The uh, story that I have is was took place in... Tucson, Arizona in 2008, I was in my senior year of college and I was looking for one last place to live, you know, just kind of have that great college experience before I moved out of town. And I found this amazing location in a place called Dunbar Spring. And the entire estate was, there was a front house, which was a mansion. And then in the back, they had converted all of the farm land and right down to the water tower to also the barn where they kept all of the livestock they had converted them into apartments so i had moved into this amazing water tower that had been transferred in uh into an apartment and i had been living there the rent was super cheap it was really easy to get the place and uh I had been there for a couple weeks, and one of the things that I had noticed when I first moved into this house was all of my cabinets would not close. They all had locks on them. None of them would close, and I just kind of thought it was an old an old house. This, you know, I didn't really think too much of it. It was just like, I guess all my cabinets are going to have to be open. And so one night I went out to uh, one of my favorite bars uh, called the Hotel Congress near my house that was on the other side of the train tracks. And when I was coming home that night, I had my first encounter of being chased by the best way I could say it is shadow people. And so I acted like I was crazy on my way home because I didn't know if it was people like there was a lot of vagrants in town. So I didn't know if I was being stalked. So I just kind of flew my arms around and tried to act crazy. I got home and felt like the faster I ran, the faster the these dark figures would chase me so I get into my apartment after running and I'm like my heart is racing and I go into my apartment and all of my cabinets are closed and they're all locked and I didn't even know that they could lock let alone even close and I really felt like someone was in my house and I walked around and I couldn't find anyone and I was terrified to go outside because people were chasing me and I was convinced that I was being chased by these vagrants. Fast forward a couple of weeks later, I keep having these strange encounters of black figures chasing me throughout uh, the neighborhood. And I tell it to my neighbor and she was like, you need to speak to the landlord. And I was like, why? She was like, I'm not gonna tell you, you just need to speak to the landlord. So I finally speak to the landlord. He gets in contact with me and he treats me as if like I'm silly. Like, I, I can't believe you don't know that you're asking these questions. Don't you know where you live? And he tells me that Dunbar Spring, where I'm living, and especially the property behind the mansion that I'm living, was behind, uh, used to belong to a notorious like KKK wizard of the area who was also very financially wealthy and wanted to eradicate the black population in Tucson. So he started kidnapping young black children and killing them and burying them on his property, the property which now that I live on. 
over this time, there was many encounters where I was contacted by uh, shadow figures in my apartment, and I never felt threatened by them. I always felt like they were, uh, it was a very friendly energy. And, but just outside of the property, the shadow figures became more violent. So I felt like there was two different kinds of figures, the ones that lived on my property who were safe and protecting me compared to the ones that were outside. So I am not a big supernatural person. I don't really kind of believe in this whole thing, especially at this time in my life. So I was really trying to come up with all these different reasons of how my cabinets were closing themselves and locking themselves and all of the figures that I would see. And I just, I was trying to come up with a whole bunch of different reasons of how this could be happening. So I started doing some research, interviewing neighbors and also going uh, in the uh, university library and finding out about the history of Dunbar. And that on my property, they found dozens of children's remains buried in my property of all of the young black children that this man had killed to try and er like eradicate the race by not letting them populate. The house over the years um, had mysteriously burnt down multiple times with no witnesses, just like a freak fire that would start from the stove or what have you. And the house, when I was living there, had, uh, had just experienced its third burn down. The entire front of the house was basically a dedication to the Ku Klux Klan, right down to all of the woodwork that was carved into their patio was all caves. It was definitely a dark, really creepy environment. And the more that I learned about the house that I was in, like living in on the property, the more all of the things that I thought were just little flukes started to become a little too real. And so... I was afraid to leave my house at night, and on one of the nights I got brave enough, I went to a house party of uh, another neighbor in, in the neighborhood, and I went to their house, and we were talking around their kitchen island, and it was a white-tiled kitchen island, and they had a little whiteboard with a marker to like say what they do during the week and all the things that they need for the grocery, and I had you know, had a few drinks and I was telling these people, I felt embarrassed, but I was like, I really think that I am being chased by demons and also being protected by like good spirits. And they didn't flinch. And he was like, what are you talking about? Tell me. And I told him about all of my experiences. And he was like, I was like, they were always frozen. All of these black shadow figures that I saw were always in the same position. And he was like, can you draw it? And I was like, yeah. So he took a dry erase marker and I took a dry erase marker and we drew on his kitchen island white tiles what we saw. And we drew the exact same figure in the exact same position. And he told me that a couple weeks prior, he, he still lives in Dunbar Springs, just a couple houses down from me. And his boyfriend was asleep. And there's, like I said, there was a lot of vagrants in the neighborhood and robberies happen all the time. And his window opened up and this dark figure came into his bedroom and he thought it was someone trying to rob them. And the figure started strangling his boyfriend. And it was a physical dark figure. He could touch it. It, was, it had a physical form and he was fighting with this dark figure to try and get it off of his boyfriend. Who was, this figure was choking him. And finally he gets the figure off and the figure leaps out the window and is gone. And the boyfriend wakes up and you know comes to and gets his breath and like all the color comes back to him. And I was like, that's exactly what I am being chased by. Why are you, why are they coming into your property? 
And, you know, the best thing that we could think of in this moment was that I was living in a place where all of these young boys were victims and they were the ones who had suffered from, you know, the torture and all of the hatred from this man and that in some way because this was a resting place and they we thought that maybe the reason why I was not being attacked and they weren't coming the violent ones weren't coming into my house was that it was a sacred ground and that maybe I was being protected by the innocence of these children this continued you know for the rest of the time that I lived there um I never felt, you know, like I said, threatened in my own house, but that communication with these spirits never went away. And I never really told anyone except for my husband because honestly, I felt like I'm crazy. But after listening to your show, I know. Thank you, Joey. Unfortunately, the ending of Joey's submission was lost, but I believe that we got the gist of everything. The story is wild. It certainly has shades of the movie Poltergeist to it. All you really need is a blonde girl in a tiny medium. I often think about situations just like this as I see cities slowly spread. Urban sprawl, if you will. I see them encompassing land stained with death and tragedy. But perhaps ironically, the living might have long forgotten about the tragedies seems like the land somehow it always remembers thanks again Joey and a big thanks to your husband for pressuring you into calling our next hometown legend is another I didn't recall hearing about until I heard this story the following was submitted anonymously from the state of Utah Greetings, Derek. I'm a huge fan of your podcast and have been meaning to share this hometown legend for a while. At some point, I will share some of my personal encounters, but for now, here's just one of Salt Lake City's countless legends. The legend of hobbits. Wicked, tricksy, and yes, I hate to spoil it for you, false. But just for the fun of things, let me explain. There is an urban legend that literally hobbit-sized humanoids reside in a quiet neighborhood within the Salt Lake City suburb of Sugar House. Hobbits for real? or just small people colloquially called hobbits. The legend, perhaps unsurprisingly, isn't quite clear on that distinction. As the legend goes, in this neighborhood you will find tiny little hobbit-sized houses, apparently not hobbit holes, and small cages. Allegedly, these hobbits are attempting to conceal their existence and will capture any trespassers and lock them in these uncomfortably tiny cages and perhaps harm said people as well. I heard of this urban legend rather by accident online, and when searching a bit further, found multiple local references to it, but little of much substance. I did find one story that is clearly quite false if you read it, alleging a rather unhobbitish bearded man chasing some young women around the neighborhood, both parties in their respective vehicles. I also found a fairly believable comment from someone claiming to be a pizza delivery person who delivered pizza to this area, and all the people seemed normal, but due to being harassed by thrill-seekers, chose to live quiet lives. A few years back, I decided to visit this site. I found it on Google Earth and realized not only did I know where it was, I drove by it all the time. It is in a very nice, quiet neighborhood right off a semi-major surface street. One afternoon, I pulled down this lane, and it was practically one way. Far, far smaller than the legend would lead you to believe, it was more of a driveway than anything. To my right, I did see a few small cages, empty and unused. 
On my left, I quickly saw a bizarre building, something like a circular veranda you might find in a public park, only this one could fit one, maybe two people in it, and that, too, tightly. It was tall enough for a normal human, but just very small in width and length, going off my imperfect memory, maybe four to five feet in circumference, and again, normal human height, like a doorway height. I was soon stopped by a stone to my left with colorful porcelain inlay, words notifying me that this was private property and that I was essentially trespassing. I didn't have enough room to turn around, as I now desired to do out of legal duty and respect to the residents, so I pulled down the road just a little more in order to have more space to turn around. When I did so, I could see the end of the lane, not far from me. Once again, a very small piece of property. There were a few small houses indeed, but as before, normal human height, just rather small beyond that, as if they had one or two rooms inside. I witnessed no hobbits, no people at all, nothing curious, and if I may say so, no magic rings either. The explanation for these bizarre structures, according to some decent articles I also found on the web, seems to be that the former owner of this small little lane about a hundred years ago was a lover of birds, hence the bird-sized cages. And as for the small structures, apparently he supplemented his decent fortune with income by building small residences and then renting them out to college students. At least, that's what I heard. It certainly is a workable explanation for an interesting little local lane and its legend. Thanks for getting this far into my relatively uninteresting story. Utah and Salt Lake City has a ton of other interesting things, so I may share more in the future. For now, this was one I thought might interest your listeners. Keep up the great work, Derek. Thank you, caller. I love the investigative approach you took in locating the area. I've heard of little people sightings in many places, including Massachusetts and California. And now, thanks to our mysterious caller, I can add Utah to that list. Thanks again for sharing your hometown's legend. Our next submission actually takes us back to the state of Texas to talk about a boat named Texas. The following was submitted anonymously from the state of Texas. I live in DFW, about three to four hours southeast of here is Laporta, just outside of Houston on the Houston Shipping Channel. Nestled amongst the many chemical plants and refineries is the last remaining dreadnought battleship in the world, USS Texas BB-35. It was completed in 1912, over a hundred years ago. It's open to visitors today, but due to be sent to Alabama for repairs to fix its corroding hull. This ship has served in World War I and saw combat in both theaters of World War II. It was there for the D-Day invasion and shelled the beaches of Normandy, as well as provided anti-aircraft support during Iwo Jima and Okinawa in the Pacific. There are several stories about it being haunted, which, if you add it up, could be very possible, given the amount of energy that probably remains on the ship from all the action it experienced during both wars. There were some fatalities on the ship, but only one was from combat. It was right across from the Battle of San Jacinto Monument, which was where Texas had won its independence from Mexico in 1848, which could even be another reason for the occurrences on the ship. 
Rumor has it many Mexican soldiers are buried in unmarked graves there, but I don't think it's been confirmed. One story of a supposed ghost sighting is that of a red-haired sailor who doesn't give off any real vibes of ill intent. Usually the stories of the sailor are of him going about his business on the ship as he probably did decades ago. Most likely a spirit who will never really pass on and will continue to serve on the ship he called home during his time of service. The last story I've read about BB-35 was that of a potential time slip being on board the ship. This story is about a care worker that worked on the ship at the time. She walked into a room on the ship while working one day and ended up outdoors in a cemetery with crosses in the ground. It supposedly resembled the cemetery memorial they have in France dedicated to the Allied soldiers who had died while landing at Normandy. The care worker evidently took a step back and was immediately back in the USS Texas where she had just walked into a room. I visited the Texas, and while I did not get sucked into a time vortex that led to France or seen a red-haired sailor aboard, you can definitely feel the energy and easily get lost aboard this historic vessel that saw so much in its time of service. If anyone is in the area of La Porta and Houston, I highly recommend visiting this ship before it is moved. It may not make the trip to Alabama for repairs due to its deteriorating hull from being in salt water for over a century. Thank you for that submission. I should point out that the two previous submissions were performed by our talented voiceover artist, Warren Pon Abbott. A big thank you to Warren for all of his help over the last several seasons. Now, like hotels, it seems that boats, I'm sorry, ships, also seem to hang on to energy a little longer than most structures. The USS Hornet in Alameda, California. The USS Lexington in Corpus Christi, Texas. And of course, the legendary Queen Mary in Long Beach, California. The Queen Mary, long known for its paranormal activity, and if these walls could talk... Many, many stories and legends revolve around this room. Legend says room B340 has a checkered past. While she was still sailing, there is a story that a man was found dead in his cabin. She sailed from 1936 to 1967 before resting at the port of Long Beach. Becoming a hotel, one guest claimed the sheets were pulled off the bed. She sat up and she saw a man standing at the foot of her bed. Others said the bathroom door closed by itself, but that's not all. In the early years of the hotel when this room was being used, passengers also reported uh, water going on and off, lights turning on and off. The final encounter? Story is the housekeeper came in and put fresh sheets on the bed. Uh, she went out in the hall to get clean towels. When she came back, the sheets had been pulled from the bed and were laying in a pile on the floor. Nobody else was near? No one else was around, no. It was the mid-1980s, and that's when this room was closed to guests, until now. Every day I walk the ship, I see guests, and they want B340. Now it's two rooms combined into one suite. It'll come with some amenities that are not in any other state room, such as some Ouija boards and some tarot cards. And for the right price, you could stay here overnight if you dare. That clip actually comes from one of my local TV stations. KCAL, CBS News 2, out of Los Angeles. 
I still have our relatively uneventful footage from our recent trip to the Queen Mary, just sitting there, waiting to be edited. One of these days, I'll find the time to do it. Hopefully some snowy day this winter, I'll get that all put together. Thank you again, caller, and a big thanks again to Warren for all his help with his vocal wizardry. We're going to jump back in the car and go down the road a spell, but we're not going to leave the state. The following is David's call, also from the state of Texas. Hi, Derek. My name is David. I'm from Houston, Texas, and I'm calling for your Hometown Legends segment. Uh, first of all, I want to say congratulations on your upcoming wedding. The story I have for the Hometown Legends is the face at UTMB in Galveston, which is a hospital. And there's two legends uh, as to how this came about. And one of them is that a long time ago, I'm not really sure when, but UTMB, the hospital, had wanted to buy some land from the landowner to put their hospital there, and they, he refused. And he made his family promise not to sell it to him after he died, but they did anyway. And they said that's why his face haunts a panel on the exterior of a building called the Ewing Building. And they have tried to sandblast it. They've tried to replace the panel, but the face keeps coming back. Um, the other story associated with it is that it's the face of a Texas hero named William Bigfoot Wallace. He helped fight for Texas independence, and everybody that fought was supposed to get a land grant, and he had wanted that section of land there on Galveston, but the state ended up not giving it to him. Uh, he went and fought with them, with the lawyers and everything, and he never got the land, so that's why he haunts that particular site there. And uh, I saw it for myself back in 1999. At the time, I was with a paranormal group called Lone Star Spirits, and we didn't really have anything going on one night, so we just decided to go out there and see it because a lot of us had never seen it. And we went up there, and sure enough, you could see it just as plain as day. Um, we couldn't get up close to it because it is private property. I believe that's where the employees park back there. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, there are stories of people getting hurt, trespassing, and, of course, getting in trouble. But that's my story. It's the face at UTMB. A hospital there in Galveston, Texas. Again, congratulations on the marriage. Thanks for the podcast. Take care. Thank you, David. This actually reminds me of a story I remember reading about when I was a child. Colonel Buck's Tombstone in Bucksport, Maine. But for more on that, here's a clip produced by the Boston Chronicle. I couldn't get a year on it, but it seems like it's got some age to it. Consider Bucksport's most enduring legend. That controversial monument in Bucksport, bearing an outline of a leg, which legend says appeared as the result of a witch's curse. Colonel Jonathan Buck, founder of the town, has been accused of burning a witch at the stake, but of course he did nothing of the kind. This stocking-shaped stain is merely an imperfection in the granite, and don't let the natives tell you otherwise. What a bunch of buzzkills. Now I'm sure that most things like Colonel Buck's foot outline 
David's panel and the face of the burn victim from last week's episode, and even the legend of Mary Henry's horseshoe-stained grave, a local story I knew of growing up. They're all created as a result of the imperfection, rather than the other way around. In short, this particular piece of stone just happened to have a horseshoe-shaped imperfection in it. Therefore, people began to talk and create a story and a background. And over the generations, the lines of fiction and non-fiction begin to blur. Now, before we move on, thank you for the kind words, David. And for everyone else, it is true. Sarah and I officially married on July 13th. Everything was actually as perfect as possible. And I'm not lying when I said we couldn't be happier with the way it turned out. We received hundreds of messages, emails, cards, and we truly can't thank each and every one of you enough for the kindness. All right, off the wedding train and back on the highway. Finally, we get to do some driving as we make our way through New Mexico, Arizona, and into my state of California. And that's where we meet up with Eric with the final call of the evening. And with that, the following is Eric's call from the Golden State of California. Derek, hello. This is Hometown Legend Report by Eric in Southern California. Thank you so much for airing one of my prior calls. Really appreciate it. So I want to call back because I have a couple of Hometown Legends. Military brat. I've lived all over the world. And in Virginia, on a lake... Uh, a lake community it used to be a resort. Now it's just a residential neighborhood. Me and my friends would take our boats out, usually like one or two of us, family pontoon boat or something like that. And we were out on the lake one night. It was probably around 1 a.m. And this little fishing boat starts creeping up on us. And there's a light on it. And it, the motor's running. And it comes up alongside and kind of veers off because we were kind of worried they were going to collide with us. But there was no they. There was no one in the boat. And me and my friends, it was at least 10 of us, all witnessed it. And my buddy that was commanding our boat, driving it, he simply said, oh yeah, ghost boat. And I'll never forget, it got so close, you can see every row of seats in that little fishing boat. Nobody was in it. And I guess there's a little ghost boat on my hometown's lake. Other than that, uh, I lived in Florence, Italy. I studied abroad. And one of our classrooms in the basement of that facility was called the Janet Leake classroom. And Janet Leake is known because she was one of the first Americans in the 80s to study abroad in Florence. And she got off the plane. Her baggage showed up to the facilities. She did not. Not that we were in the exact location, maybe, where her school was. But I know her parents donated a lot of money into our main classroom that could fit all 60-plus students. And we had our meetings and stuff in there in the basement of this old hotel that was renovated to be the student center uh, for college students studying abroad a school. Well, I come home one night at 1.30 in the morning, and I'm on the second floor. And, uh, you know, i got to keep quiet because all the other students are sleeping. I'm changing, and my window looks out to uh, the street and a little park in the middle of the street and then uh, the rest of the street. So there's like three lanes and one of which is a little river like a creek or maybe sewage that runs through the city. 
but there's a little grassy part next to that. There was a woman staring right at me. She looked to be in her early 20s, and uh, I couldn't see her face. I knew she was Caucasian. I could see her hair. looked like she was wearing bell-bottom jeans, maybe like a leather jacket or something. But I could not see her face, and she's just looking right at me and the building I'm in. And I wake up my roommate, and I said, do you see that? And he's looking at her, and we're, like, waving at her to try to get some reaction from her. She does not move. And my roommate eventually, after a minute or two, just was like, I'm going back to bed. But, yeah, he definitely saw it. I took off my shirt, changed my pants, going to hop in the top bunk. I look out there, and she's gone. And, I mean, no one's on the street. And I'm on the second floor, and I can see that little park down there for blocks, for two blocks because of my elevation. She would have had to, even if she was in a car, by the time I would have changed my shirt and shorts, I still would have seen a car leave, like, just gone. And I could see two blocks to the left and to the right. It was absolutely impossible for somebody to just vanish like that, and yet it happened. So, yeah, Janet Leake in Florence, Italy, that was my home for a year. And uh, some weird stuff happened, you know. No one was in the basement at night, let's say that. No one was in the classrooms. Uh, I, I had a little study area down there, but I never liked Skyping because uh, we had some reports of people in America seeing ghosts on the computer screen when we were Skyping. So, anyway, really enjoy the show. Thank you so much. Really brief encounters, but hometown legends, baby. In my hometown. Memories are fresh. Yeah. All right. Love the show. Bye. Thank you, Eric. Now, Eric made mention of a mysterious place in Northern California, Mount Shasta. Shasta is one of those places that you hear about long before you ever get to see it. In fact, Sarah and I are finally making plans to visit it later this year. And I've lived in California for going on 15 years now. The point is, it's mysterious. And that's not just because it's shrouded in oddly shaped clouds. The mountain has its mysteries. Sasquatch is said to roam the forests surrounding it. The UFOs are said to use the mountain as a refueling center. And of course, it's known worldwide for its healing abilities. But the legend that I can't get out of my head, the legend I first heard about when I was a kid and haven't been able to shake since, that of course is the story of the city of Telos. Another um, theory is the city of Telos that's underneath Mount Shasta. According to Ashlyn, Telos is a crystal city inside the mountain, inhabited by beings called Lemurians, who mostly keep to themselves. Well, there's a couple stories from the 1940s where the Lemurians were actually seen walking into town. They were seven feet tall, dressed in long white robes and sandals. And then go into the store and buy something, pay for it with a chunk of gold. The shopkeeper would take the gold, turn around and try to give him change, and the Lemurian would be gone. Considering all these stories, I decided to check out the mountain myself. So I am walking into a snow-covered meadow. I think this is the vortex that Ashlyn told me about. There's hardly any footprints out here. The air feels cold and sharp. The old-growth cedars are covered in brilliant green moss, and shape-shifting clouds whip across the sky impossibly fast. I don't have a spiritual epiphany, but it is awesome. I mean, literally awesome. And I think I understand why the mountain has so many legends to its name. Ashland probably puts it best. It's a non-denominational mountain. Mount Shasta. The Greeks had Olympus, 
Moses had Sinai, and spiritual seekers in the modern age have Shasta. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Jackson. That clip comes to us from an NPR story entitled A Mountain of Many Legends Drawn Spiritual Seekers from Around the Globe by Stephen Jackson. So I guess I'm not surprised to hear that the nearby lake of the same name has its own legend of a ghost boat. And by the way, I have to say, if hometown legends had a mascot, a ghost boat might be pretty high in the running. Thank you again, Eric, for taking the time to share your story to share your story. Now, folks, it is your turn to interact. Head on over to either of the Facebook destinations, either the fan page or the interactive group, and find the poll to vote on which half of the U.S. had a better hometown legend showing. There's nothing at stake here. It's just a friendly little wager. A contest to determine if the East truly is the beast. Or if, in fact... The West really is the best. Only time and your votes will tell. And that's going to do it for this episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Warren Pon Abbott, Tony Bell, and Addie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And the terrifying score that you hear, well, that's Coag music. Thank you all for listening, and until next season. stick around. Well, as it turns out, I actually have two written submissions to share, and they're both quite lengthy. So I'll be doing no jibber-jabbering about either of these submissions. The first one comes to us from Stephanie in the state of New Mexico. This is perfect timing. I learned about this the same week as the call for hometown legends. I grew up in Farmington, New Mexico, a small oil and gas town up near the Four Corners in the site of the 1950 Farmington UFO Armada. On March 15th of 1950, around noon, several disc-shaped, metallic silver-colored objects appeared in the sky. According to the Daily Times, our local newspaper, half the town saw the strange aircraft, and estimates ranged from several to more than 500 of these objects. These appeared to play tag high in the air, and streaked away at unbelievable speeds. A witness took a triangulation sighting on one and estimated its speed to be around 1,000 miles per hour and twice the size of a B-29. This lasted about two hours, but whatever visited 
wasn't done and came back the next two days, at the same time, and lasted the same duration. Besides the local newspaper, you can find snippets of the story in a few other newspapers, including the Los Angeles Times, and a photograph of a few of the objects in a triangle formation. It is also said that shortly after the event, government agents arrived and hushed up everything, claiming national security and stating that the cause was determined to be a research balloon that exploded. As with many UFO sightings, there could be another explanation. Maybe it was plastic pieces from a balloon or a desert mirage. But if you know your New Mexico geography, as I am sure everyone does, you know that 10 to 15 minutes from Farmington lies a tiny town of Aztec. The same Aztec of the 1948 UFO crash. I can't remember it at all, but I spent the first few years of my life there. And because synchronicity has to come in threes, when I went off to college, I decided on New Mexico Tech, an amazing science and engineering school where the Mythbusters and government regularly explode things on the mountain near the campus. NMT is in Sakuro, which is more well known for the Lonnie Zamora UFO sighting. Small towns in New Mexico and UFOs go together, it seems. Thank you for the podcast and thank you to everyone who have shared their stories. Stephanie. Well, thank you, Stephanie. And Stephanie actually provided a link which you can find in tonight's show notes. And that brings us to our truly final submission of the evening. And this one comes to us anonymously from, you guessed it, the state of Texas. Hi, Derek. I've lived in several states over the years, but I now live in Denton, Texas. I'm sure listeners of Monsters Among Us will recognize Denton as the home of one of the famous Goatman. But since that's a fairly well-known legend, and was brought up on last season's finale, I figured I would submit a hometown legend from right up the road. I don't believe this story has been covered on the show, but it's an important part of American UFO history. Of course, I'm talking about the Aurora, Texas UFO incident. According to locals, on April 17th, 1897, a UFO crashed on a farm near Aurora, Texas. It may not be well known, but this event predates Roswell by almost 50 years. Locals even claimed the crash resulted in a fatality, and the alleged alien body was buried in an unmarked grave at the local cemetery. In the months leading up to the crash, numerous sightings of a cigar-shaped mystery ship were reported across the United States. One of these accounts appeared in the April 17, 1897 edition of the Dallas News, written by Aurora resident S.E. Hayden. The alleged UFO is said to have hit a windmill on the property of Judge J.S. Proctor two days earlier at around 6 a.m. local time, resulting in its crash. The pilot, who was reported to be quote-unquote not of this world and quote a Martian, according to a reported army officer from nearby Fort Worth, did not survive the crash and was buried with quote-unquote Christian rites. At the nearby Aurora Cemetery, the cemetery even contains a Texas Historical Commission marker mentioning the incident. Reportedly, wreckage from the crash site was dumped into a nearby well located under the damaged windmill, while some ended up with the alien in the grave. 
Adding to the mystery was the story of Mr. Brawley Oates, who purchased Judge Proctor's property around 1935. Oates cleaned out the debris from the well in order to use it as a water source, but later developed an extremely severe case of arthritis, which he claimed to be a result of contaminated water from the wreckage dumped into the well. As a result, Oates sealed up the well with a concrete slab and placed an outbuilding atop the slab. Of course, there is also evidence to suggest that the entire incident may have been a hoax. Research performed by Barbara Brammer, a former mayor of Aurora, and featured as part of a UFO Files episode on the incident, revealed that in months prior to the alleged crash, Aurora had been hit with a series of tragic incidents, including a failing cotton crop, a fire, a spotted fever epidemic, and a planned railroad stopping 27 miles short of Aurora. Essentially, Aurora was in serious danger and dying out. It's possible that the article on the incident was a last-ditch attempt to help the town survive. The incident has been investigated on numerous occasions and has been featured on both UFO files and UFO hunters. I've been out to the cemetery myself and didn't see much, as there is no longer a headstone on the supposed alien's grave. Still, it's nice to have a piece of UFO history just a 45-minute drive away. Thanks for the awesome podcast. I'm already looking forward to next season. Keep up the good work, and cheers. Well, thank you for that submission. It was not only extremely well-written, but also covered essentially every aspect of the Aztec crash. Believe it or not, there have been quite a few UFO crashes reported uh, throughout the years and throughout our country. A few of these incidents that stick out to me are, of course, Roswell, New Mexico, uh, Aurora, Texas, Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, and of course, Aztec, New Mexico. Thank you again to both submitters that took the time to write their stories out. And thank you for sticking around to the end of the program. I'll catch you guys next season. Have an amazing night. If you thought you had to travel far to savor the Pad Thai of Bangkok, or to taste the pastries of Paris, Take another look. With two times total points at grocery stores, your same kitchen can come with more cuisines. Sapphire Preferred from Chase? Make more of what's yours. Valor up to $1,000 in purchases per month from November 1st, 2020 to April 30th, 2021. Account subject to credit approval. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. It all starts with an invitation to experience Lexus. To start the ignition. To feel confident. To be connected to everything. It starts as an invitation to drive a Lexus vehicle, but it becomes a dynamic experience. The Invitation to Lexus sales event. Your invitation is always open, but the offers only last through March 31st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Click the banner to discover more.